You are listening to Change Agents on WERU, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. My guest today is Seth Reed Westler. He's an investigative journalist focusing on immigration and race. He writes for ProPublica. We will be discussing his work on immigration and perhaps on other issues. Seth is one of my two sons. So, Seth, when did you know that you were going to be um, or wanted to do work that focused on uh, addressing um, issues relating to social justice or or um, other similar things. You know, I think that I always had an assumption that the work I would do would be focused on social justice issues. The question for me was, what would I do? How would I do that? And I remember in college, even before that in high school, uh, and then after college, feeling like there were um, there was sort of a whole world of possibilities of ways to do social justice-oriented work. And the question that I felt very lucky to be able to ask was like, how can I do that best? In what way can I, what kind of work best fits my skills and the kinds of things that I want to do to be able to try to affect some kind of change? I thought about being a community organizer. I thought about uh, going to law school. I considered going to get a degree to become an academic, to focus on research on social justice issues and sort of found my way into being a journalist, frankly, somewhat accidentally. Um, I hadn't known any journalists and um, I didn't sort of understand it to be a tenable career path, a a way to um, make a living. And of course, it's a it's a it's a messy field these days. Journalism uh, is not is not doing all that well in a broad sense. And so, you know, for a very long time, I didn't imagine it was a it was a path to be able to do social justice work. Um, but it has been. And so um, I, f- I have found that for me, the mix of really rigorous and skeptical research, where I'm asking lots of questions in every direction, and the ability to gather, listen to, and then tell stories about the way that people um, live their lives in relationship to powerful institutions um, and in the context of um, inequality and harm um, has fit my skills and the kind of work that I want to do. Thank you. Um, I just want to go back a little bit. which is, um, you said you always knew you were going to want to do something um, in um, uh, involving human rights or other ways of saying the same thing, and that was for for what reason were there? You know, um, as as you may know, for for obvious reasons, um, you know, as a young person. Um, we lived in a family where you and our mom um, were dedicated to social justice issues in the in their work. You as a as a lawyer focused on civil rights issues, our mother as a social worker 
um, working in various capacities. And so I had this sort of, frankly, somewhat strange experience of, um, strange, I mean, I think fairly unusual of having two parents who wear work, work seemed to be something that also um, was about doing good. And that's a very particular kind of um, experience and one that normalized that as the sort of um, as what you do when you find when you try to find work um, that that is a lucky position um, and one you know that that um, I'm really very grateful for to to have been able to and uh, to have had sort of models of thinking about that being what work should be um, and so when I thought about what I what I wanted to do that was the context I was coming from. So what is the um, uh, difference between being a um, a journalist who is um, uh, perhaps writing a story every day or every other day for a, a newspaper and, uh, on the other hand, the kind of work you do as an investigative reporter? Yeah. So, you know, investigative reporting can take many forms. There are investigative reporters who work very quickly. They're chasing pieces of stories, uncovering um, hidden dynamics in the way that government works, in the way that companies work. And uh, and then there's there's also investigative journalism of the kind that I do and a lot of my colleagues do that sort of long-term, long-form, deep, deep digging work where we begin with questions, maybe a tip about a certain kind of harm. Maybe somebody has said, I think this problem is happening. Um, and we and I want to to figure out what that looks like. Um, and and that often takes a tremendous amount of kind of, of research work, of um, interviews for certain stories, sometimes with more than 100 people for a single story to try to really understand what's happening. And um, I'm to kidding. To, to um using the freedom of information act which is a a um federal law and then all states have corollary uh, laws that allow the public including journalists to get access to government documents and i spend a lot of time filing those requests and then culling through often you know thousands of pages of records to try to understand what happened and so, so it's so, this so long long period of research that goes into these stories um the, uh, was it easy to get cop records out of the the government uh in i mean i do it all the time um i request records all the time the federal government's open records laws are notoriously sort of broken um Many agencies, for instance, the Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Justice, where I often file records requests, it can take months and months, sometimes more than a year to receive records back. Um, oftentimes, the government sends those records back. And these are records like internal emails or memos that were written about a certain kind of an issue, um, uh, you know, contracts that have been drafted with external companies that that the government is contracting with. They'll sometimes come back heavily redacted with whole pages or whole sections of pages covered up in these sort of big black boxes that are, you know, um, trying to hide information the government says is secret. And and so it's a real it's a real challenge. Um, 
in certain cases, I've I've had to pursue legal action against government agencies for failing to release documents. So, oh, okay. let me just jump in on that. Is is that expensive? Um, I've never I've never paid for that because there are a lot of lawyers who um, uh, are interested in government transparency and in the work of journalism, and so I've been able to get the support of 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 lawyers pro bono for free as volunteers um sometimes they earn fees from uh, when courts order that the other side the government agency pay fees after we win but i never pay anything and that's that's really important because if i did have to pay it would be um prohibitively expensive um i've also worked at and i'm currently working at a journalism organization that has a lawyer on staff to do many things, but one of the things that they do is to litigate FOIA requests. I will say that uh, that the Freedom of Information Act, which is the federal law, um, works uh, as, as I described. It can be onerous, and 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 the backlogs and delays can sometimes be such that you know I just don't get what I need in time for it to be meaningful. But state open records laws they vary dramatically state to state, um, but they tend they tend to work much better. And often that's because um, agencies are smaller. There are fewer requests coming in. You know, sometimes I have the best luck with like a small county somewhere where just the the county clerk who does a million things um, is also processing an open records request and in a number of days I'll get back what I need. So that's been very, very, very useful. I'm right now kind of dealing with several counties in Virginia for a story that I'm working on. And I've been able to get all of the information that I need quite, um, quite quickly. You are listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. My uh, guest today is Seth Reed Wessler, an investigative reporter uh, working for ProPublica. Uh, and we are discussing uh, his work involving stories on immigration as well as other issues. Um, um, from from reading uh, a number of um, your stories, it seems that uh, often um, uh, your stories involve immigrants who are in prison, whether on the high seas or in um, uh, uh, in a detention facility in the U.S. Um, yeah, you know, I've I've spent a lot of time uh, over the last now uh, fourteen or fifteen years working as a journalist, um, focused on the way that our immigration system works and uh, or doesn't work, um, and often that's focused on. Uh, the immigration enforcement system, that is the way that the government tries to regulate immigration laws, punish people for um, allegedly violating those laws. Um, and often that's about people being incarcerated or detained in a vast system of um, jails and prisons and detention centers that are used to hold non-citizens who are facing the prospect of of deportation. It, about... Um, 13 years ago, um, I was working um, at an organization that ha- that published a magazine. It was then a print magazine called Color Lines. And 
I began working on a research project and uh, investigative journalism project. Um, we had heard from um, a number of people that there were children of immigrants um, so uh, who had ended up in state foster care systems because their parents, who were non-citizens, had been detained and in some cases deported. Um, to the countries that they were born in. So these were U.S.-born, U.S. citizen children who, after their parent was detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the Federal Immigration Agency, were finding themselves stuck in um, in local county-level child welfare systems in, in foster care, separated from their parents. And, and, and uh, Seth, were these um, parents, I, I assume, uh, wanted their children back and were able to take care of them? Yes, every single one of these parents wanted to be parenting their child. Um, so we got this tip and um, uh, and I, I then ended up spending the better part of a year trying to figure out the extent to which this was happening. Um, the extent to which when um, People were were detained and deported by ICE. And this was a time during the Obama administration when hundreds of thousands of people every year were being picked up in the interior of the United States, living their lives here, and placed in immigration detention. Immigration and, detention. And can, Seth, can you just explain what ICE is? Yeah, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is an agency that's part of a, a department called the Department of Homeland Security. It was launched, stood up after 9-11. It's a massive and sprawling, multi-pronged or uh, de federal department that's sort of like the Department of Justice, but called the Department of Homeland Security. And part of, part of the Department of Homeland Security is this agency, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And they what they do is essentially they, they run a, a massive sort of sprawling system of immigration detention centers. These are prisons that are used to hold immigrants waiting to be deported or released and allowed to stay in the United States. Um, immigration detention is um, is civil. That is to say, um, it's used, uh, the government says, only to hold people so that they show up at court. It's not supposed to be formally punishment, but it is prison and it ex is experienced like prison. People get detained sometimes for very long periods of time. One of the things about ICE detention that's really striking is that um, nobody tells you when you get detained how long you will be detained. It is inherently indefinite, which means that people can sit there wondering, when will I be released from this prison? Which is different from, from prison as we imagine it. People get a sentence. Sometimes those sentences are very long. Sometimes they're not. And you know when you will be released. But the immigration courts are so sort of backlogged and slow and um, function like this labyrinth that um, people who the government seeks to deport can can end up spending months or in some cases years sitting behind bars without any idea when they will be released. And then so, often suddenly they're deported or released back into the United States to, to be with com their communities, their families. And and um, so this... Uh, Seth, aren't there options um, other than um keeping these people in jail um 
are there ways to ensure that these people are going to come to their uh, their court take? The, in in virtually every case, the the federal government is choosing um, to detain people. No law has said that they absolutely must keep someone in a prison. No judge has told them they must keep people in a prison. And so it's a it's a policy choice to say this is the way that we as a country have decided to treat people who are either seeking to stay in the United States, maybe they're claiming asylum or um, maybe uh, they've lived here for a very long time and um, our, our, the government is now trying to deport them. Um, it's it's a policy decision. There are lots of other ways that we could um, uh, proceed to enforce immigration laws. People could be told you need to show up at this date in court. Um, uh, you, you need to check in with an officer every once in a while. Um, and the reality is that the research shows that people do that, that the vast majority of people who um, are allowed to proceed with their immigration court proceedings well at home, well outside in the community, show up for court. So, um, you know, it's not it's not serving the function. It's not a necessary thing to to kind of accomplish the goal that <clears throat> that people that the government says it's trying to accomplish, and that that leads to um, the sort of re- realization that ICE detention is sort of less about stopping people from disappearing. And much more about punishment. That is sending the message that if you um, are a non-citizen and you either don't have permission to be in the U.S. or um, you've done something that the government says makes you deportable, that we are going to informally, in a way, punish you by putting a, you into a into a prison that you know is 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 not called a prison called a civil detention center but it is a prison and and that that will send a message to other immigrants that um don't come here or 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 be scared um so there's, that, there's that, really that, no no particular indication that that deterrence or punishment effect works either that is disturbing um and uh i want to go back to um where i interrupted you talking about um the uh, issues with uh, ch- children who are American born, uh, and their parents are, are not. Right. So the, their, these, these parents, uh, were detained in the system that we've just been talking about, were detained sometimes for very long periods of time. Um, and what we were finding was that, that many parents and we, we're able to sort of create a, a an estimate based on data we were able to gather that something like 5,000 children were in state child welfare systems, were in foster care, um, in the in the formal custody of of state of states um, at the point that we published this story, which was now a decade ago, um, and were not being easily reunited, reunified with their parents. And and it was a really complicated set of dynamics. One of the things that was happening was that that courts were saying, if you're detained, we have no idea when you'll be released and we expect that you'll probably be deported. And there's no way that we would ever consider, judges would sometimes say, sending a U.S. citizen child with their parent to say Mexico or Guatemala or any other country. And so what that meant was there were these decisions being made in a county courthouse about um, about the well-being of a child 
uh, about sort of assumptions about the potential, you know, whether whether a, a kid could be allowed to live in another country with their parent who'd been de- deported. Major sort of foreign policy decisions, in a way, being made at the level of of a county courthouse, and 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 families were sometimes separated for um, months and months and months or years, and in in some cases, um, parents lost their children permanently. Their parental rights were terminated while they were detained or after they were deported, unable to get to court to, to, to say their part, represented by an attorney who sometimes did not speak the same language that they they spoke. And so um, I actually last year, this was a decade after I first met her, was in touch with a Russian woman who was detained in California. Um, she had um, she had been adopted by a U.S. family when she was uh, uh, young, came to the U.S., never became a citizen, which she could have become, ended up um, in immigration detention. Her child was pa- placed in, in foster care, and she never regained custody of that child. Her then baby is now um, a preteen living with a with a family in California and she has no, no contact that, with her daughter that that's a uh, a sad story and um, and, that, what, what, and and I'll say that 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 project that investigative project which took as I said almost a year um included many dozens of interviews with people detained in ice detention centers with lawyers with child welfare administrators and caseworkers and judges. I mean, hundreds of interviews traveling around the country. I mean, that led me to a whole series of other investigative projects about the the conditions in the experience of and the fallout, the long the effect, the sort of collateral effects of immigration detention. And that's I've spent a lot of time over the last decade on on those stories. So um in a a minute or so, I hope that we can um, learn about um, uh, another one of your stories. Um, You are listening to Change Agents on uh, WERRU, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. Uh, My guest today is Seth Reed Wessler, an investigative reporter for ProPublica. We have been discussing um his work on uh addressing uh problems in the immigration system um uh, you know i'm i'm thinking about um uh, as you've been telling me is you know how do you get this information and uh, i know that you had one case where there was the information you were getting was quite unusual uh, with people in immigration prison. Um, could you talk about that that case? Um, yeah, I think your sound is off. Uh, sorry about that. Um, can you, which were you asking about, are, are you asking about a specific story um, should, or, or just sort of in general, the, the way? No, it's the, the, Specific story and the one I was thinking about are uh, the ones who um, uh, you gave them. Um, uh, I, I don't know what it would be. It was 
um, something that they could um, uh, tell you what was going on, even when you uh, were not in front of them. Yeah. Well, um, in March of 2020, uh, as everybody remembers, you know, the world sort of ground to a halt. Um, uh, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. Flights were canceled. People were losing their jobs. Um, and and in a way, uh, the world for everybody sort of was turned on its head. We were trying to figure out what life would look like as this raging pandemic began to spread. And as a reporter, you know, that meant a couple of things for me. First, it meant that plans I had to report stories that required travel, some of those were canceled because I couldn't get any flights. I couldn't leave the country. In this case, I was supposed to to leave the country to report an, a story that was also about immigration. And so I was trying to figure out what am I going to do with my time? How am I going to justify, um, you know, my how am I going to get paid, basically? How am I going to, um, what am I going to report on? I, I was sort of starting from zero. Um, but of course, there was a lot to report on because there was a pandemic. And in the context that I write about with often, detention centers and prisons, you know, I knew that um, that COVID was going to be a particular problem, a particularly awful thing, because prisons and jails and detention centers, you know, they don't permit for social distancing. There's often medical neglect in these facilities already. And so I expected that they would be really awful as the pandemic reached these places. Um, earlier in, in 2019, I'd, I'd been reporting on um, an, an issue around um, ICE and ICE practice, immigration enforcement practices in Georgia. And as I was reporting that story, I I learned that many ICE detention centers had um, had placed in the cell blocks where people were were held these video visitation systems. So tablets like an iPad were placed inside of the, the cell blocks in places that detained people could access. And people on the outside, usually family members, relatives, were able to call in on a video feed like the one we're on right now, like a Zoom call, but through a, a separate a proprietary platform and pay 25 cents a minute, which is a whole lot of money for a, for a call to talk with their 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 relatives um, who were detained. Um, I had used that as a reporting tool to reach specific people inside of Georgia ICE detention centers, uh, several of them in the state. And so when the pandemic began and my reporting plans were sort of canceled and I was trying to figure out what to do, I began calling those same people, people I already knew in a set of immigration and customs enforcement detention centers in Georgia. Um, Initially, I wrote a couple of fairly fast stories about what life was like inside of the detention centers as the pandemic was spreading. Those were published on various web outlets. And then I began work on a, a longer, more uh, sustained uh, magazine story for the New York Times magazine about, about this place, about this particular ICE detention center called the Irwin County Detention Center in South Georgia. Um and and what it was like to try to to try to survive and uh, and live inside of a of a prison of a of an ice detention center as as this raging pandemic reached the facility um but as i was on these calls these video calls um 
I began to sort of realize that I was I was not just learning things and and hearing things, but also seeing into a world that by design is not meant to be seen from the outside. You know, pr- prisons and jails and detention centers are are built to keep people on the inside away from people on the outside. That's that that is what they are built to do to separate people. Um, and getting access to these places from the outside as a as a anybody, but also as a journalist is incredibly hard. And this video visitation system, which again is set up so that families can call for brief periods of time and it and and pay a whole lot of money to do that, became for me a sort of window into this place that's supposed to stay in the shadows. And so and were there things that surprised you? I mean, it was it was profoundly surprising constantly. There were major dramatic things that happened, but also regular everyday life kinds of things that happened. I mean, I was on these calls for so many hours, sometimes for three or four or five hours a day, sometimes late at night with people, sometimes very early in the morning. It started to consume my, the first eight or nine months of the pandemic for me. And so I was seeing a kind of regular routine, sometimes grindingly boring, everyday life in a in an immigration facility. I, I I realized that if I called in to one particular cell block where I'd come to know several people and was having regular conversations, if I called in at six fifteen p.m., I would be on the line sitting with a group of men, mostly from Latin America, who had gathered to hold. Um, informal church, and they would sing songs, uh, cantations that they all knew or that they learned. And I would sometimes sit for 15 or 30 minutes and just sit as I listened to this singing happen. In another cell block, a group of African men, um, mostly from Cameroon, but also from elsewhere, gathered to do the same thing and sing different songs in church, uh, different church songs. You know, I watched people as they walked around these fa- fairly tight cell blocks where there's an open space in the middle uh, as they walked around lap after lap passing every minute by the camera in the background of uh behind the person i was talking to trying to get some semblance modicum of exercise over and over again and sometimes i would call back in and call back in and the same men or the same women were still walking around and around this tiny cell block, just trying, trying to move. And then sometimes, you know, very, very dramatic things happened. Um, Not long after I began making these calls, the Irwin County Detention Center, which is a county jail that ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, has turned into a, a federal detention center, really exploded in a, in a series of protests. People inside were trying to demand their release. They, they said that they could be allowed to leave, that they should be allowed to leave and 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 um, proceed with their immigration cases from the outside. Um, Other people uh, inside sad, sad. had medical vulnerabilities that made them vulnerable to COVID and were saying they should be released. And 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 they were asking for protections from COVID inside. Um and uh, this led, I believe, to a story about two people. That's right. So um, very early in the course of beginning to make these calls, several weeks after I started calling people inside to report on the conditions of 
COVID in a detention center. Um, I'd met two particular people who seemed to me to want to be in regular conversation with me, to want to get on the these these video calls every single day, and who also I found to be quite compelling and thoughtful about the the place that they were in, the condition of this place, and and importantly for me, who are also sort of starting to become organizers, com- community organizers of a kind inside of these detention centers. And so who had a vantage point, a, a sense of the community that they were in. And so I began and- to talk to them every day, sometimes multiple times a day, each of them. One one of these people's name is Nilsson Barahona. The other's name is Andrea Manrique. Nilsson is from Guatemala, but he has lived in the United States for 20 years. And he was detained after he was arrested in the community that he lives in, caught with a, a with a bit of marijuana, arrested. That charge was dropped, but ICE nonetheless decided that they should deport him. Andrea had been detained after she actually arrived at the, the airport in Los Angeles. She's from Colombia, and she had a tourist visa that was good for 10 years. She'd come back and forth between the United States before, visiting with the permission legally of the United States. But at the airport, a border officer uh, asked her if she had any fear of returning to her country. And Andrea did fear going back home because when she was younger, she had been um, uh, attacked by a political group uh, for things that she had, political stuff she uh, had been involved in. And, um, and she honestly answered that she did. And instead of allowing her to proceed through the, 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 the check um, at the airport, the border officer at that point had her tourist visa revoked and she was categorized as an asylum seeker, as somebody seeking asylum because she said she was not, she feared going back to Colombia. And at that time, and still to significant degree today, people claiming asylum, saying that they are at, at risk if they return to their country were being sent summarily to immigration detention centers and held there for months or in some cases years as their claim in immigration court proceeded. This was a really... Seth, it just seems like a tremendous amount of money putting people into prison when um, there would be, you know, all of the different things that you've talked about that could be options. Well, why... why, um, what what are these prisons? Are they um, federal prisons? Are they who's running them? Yeah, I mean it's incredibly expensive, and it's it's frankly incredibly cruel. I mean it's it it is punishment for for no clear articulated reason. Which you know, if you think about it, is 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 sort of terrifying, right? As I said, that people can be held for an indefinite amount of time, and whether or not you're held in these prisons is arbitrary. Um, and, you know, um, being locked up anywhere for any reason is a terrifying thing. Um, but there's something very particular about being held in indefinite and arbitrary detention because you're a non-citizen. Um, there's a sprawling system of hundreds of ICE detention centers around the country. Some are large and they are owned by or operated by ICE. Others are also very large facilities that are run by private prison companies, groups like um, the Geo Group or LaSalle Corrections, and the government pays those companies to run these jails. And others 
are just county jails. In Maine, there are several county jails, at least one that are used, have a contract, an agreement with ICE, with Immigration Customs Enforcement, to hold people um, inside of those jails as they proceed with their immigration cases. Um, and so, uh, you know, the there's um they're they're everywhere they're sort of all all over the country um uh in almost every state in the country and are they well run um no i mean they're they're you know they vary dramatically but the the general norm is that um these places are um are are dangerous for people to be in um you know i've i've reported on medical neglect in in immigration detention where very sick people are ignored um and where people die as a result of of that that kind of medical negligence i've reported on um people who don't have adequate food or 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 you know where hygiene is is not sufficient um and you know they 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 can be absolutely terrible places to be if you think about the stories we hear about county jails they're often terrible, right? Um, and these are often county jails or private prisons, which are also, you know, decisions about how to run them are connected to profit. And so if you hire fewer people, if you hire fewer medical care providers, if you provide fewer services and resources, the, the companies make more money. And that produces a situation where there's an incentive to make these places strip down kind of more difficult places to be. Um, um, and that's what I that's what I observed in the Irwin County Detention Center as I was on these calls and as I was watching life go on. And ultimately, um, that reporting, I decided that I couldn't I couldn't fully articulate what I was seeing through writing, which is the normal way that I tell stories. I normally work as a as a writer, um, writing for magazines and newspapers and and web outlets. But I decided that this was a visual thing, that the experience I was having watching life inside needed to be experienced visually by people on the outside. And so this was my first sort of endeavor into filmmaking. So um, let's let's just hold on for one second so people um, know um, who we're talking to or I'm talking to. Uh, you are listening to Change Agents on WERU, uh, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. Uh, my guest today is Seth Reed Wessler, an investigative reporter for ProPublica, and we have been talking about issues relating to immigration. So if you could uh, now go back to um, the film. Yeah, so as I was saying, you know, I felt like the best way to kind of communicate what was happening in this place um, was was by was try, by trying to use the footage that I was gathering through this video chat system, which, as I said, is sort of like a Zoom or FaceTime call, um, to produce a narrative film that people on the outside could um, could ex could could see, could could sort of try, and I could try to bring people on the outside closer to what I was seeing on the inside. And so over uh, many months, I worked with a, an editor and uh, other uh, collaborators to produce a film that uh, is called The Facility. It's available on the website of Field of Vision, which you can Google and find. The Facility um, is a half hour documentary that aired on MSNBC and elsewhere 
um, that tells the story of a year of um, of of the life of of a group of people, including Nilsson and Andrea, um, who, as they try to survive in this detention center, as they organize and lead a protest, um, and ultimately as they demand their release, which suddenly, arbitrarily, and without them expecting it, happened at the end of the film. Um, they were just let out after being held with no clear and articulated reason. And uh, and, and was the um, was the um, focus of the people um, in the prisons related to COVID? The protests that I um, that were exploding were related to COVID. Absolutely, I mean, people were demanding uh, basic things like soap and masks to be able to stay uh safe and then people were demanding that they be released nilson nilson barahona for example had a, a set of medical vulnerabilities pre-existing conditions that meant that if he got covid which he had very little ability to protect from in an ice detention center um he he would be at significant risk people were getting covid all over this place and people were dying in this place um uh, and uh, and so he and many others were saying, let us go home to our families, in his case, a young son and his wife who lived just north of Atlanta, and we will proceed with our cases. And that's exactly what happened when they were finally released. But it took, in each of their cases, um, in Nilsson's case, nearly a year, in Andrea, almost two years uh, sitting behind these prison bars um, before they were allowed and, and, and if I understand this correctly, um, the the release of these two people um, came um, uh, right after um, your film. Uh, they were released before the film came out. After the story was published, though, uh, in the New York Times, and okay. and after they had led a series of of protests, um, including in Nilsson's case. A hunger strike that lasted about 10 days uh, that he joined with a group of other people who were held there. And in the film, you sort of begin to understand um, a community of solidarity that formed in this detention center. Um, uh, and then and, and, and a number of other protests. You know, I, I was I captured in this film moments of, of pretty significant tension and drama, for example, um, an ICE officer walked into the unit where Nilsson was held while he, um, while the protests were going on, and said, "On, uh, on, as I was recording him, there's nobody with COVID here. There's nothing for you to worry about. Basically, shut up. Everything is fine." And everybody there knew that there were people with COVID. In fact, the warden had gone to federal court the day before and admitted that there were people with COVID inside of the, the detention center. And people who were detained there knew that. And they confronted the ICE officer. And that moment is captured in the film. These moments that are absolutely not meant to be seen. But because this video is sitting there, I was able to capture them. Um, but there's also footage in the film, a moment in the film when after these protests had gone on for uh, a number of weeks, ICE began, uh, rather that the private company that runs the detention center, LaSalle Corrections, began cracking down. And Andrea and several others were placed into isolation cells for, for, for two weeks, were placed in tiny cells, two people in the cells as punishment 
for being involved in, you know, in protest and First Amendment protected protest. And and there's a, a bit of footage that um, was captured from one of these screens on the outside of the, the, the isolation cell. Another detained person turned on that camera, answered a call in that in that in that part of the detention center. And um, and there's footage of Andrea. You can hear and see her through a tiny window in the in the isolation cell um pretty uh, a, a pretty gratuitous decision to 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 place people in in punishment cells in isolation for two weeks um, um, is, thing to do there's you know over the past 20 plus years um there's been uh, a lot of light on being put on uh, the harm that um, solitary um, punishment is—is um, is that is that still legal to be able to do what they did? Um, it was legal almost everywhere to place people into isolation. Um, it's considered torture by many bodies, uh, legal bodies, and international human rights bodies, and nonetheless, it's legal basically almost everywhere. One of the things that they do is they just don't call it solitary confinement. They call it isolation. In this case, there were two people in a cell, not one. Um, ICE ICE has rules about this, but ICE doesn't run these detention centers. These private companies run these the detention centers. The private companies have their own internal rules. ICE is supposed to um, uh, regulate the facilities. They, they tend to take a fairly laissez-faire approach to that regulation. And so basically anything can happen. And you're absolutely right. Um, the harm of, of that kind of punishment of being locked up without being able to leave and no, and no clear sense when you'll be able to leave a single tiny cell is, um, devastating. Andrea, um, I'm in touch with pretty regularly. She's now continuing to work as an organizer on the outside, working with people who have been detained. She's still struggling with what she describes as significant trauma, the fallout of having been locked up in that cell and of being locked up for almost two years in immigration detention centers for a longer period of time. She talks about that very clearly. Um, and, you know, you multiply that by millions of people who've been held in these kinds of facilities and millions and millions of people who are held in other kinds of jails and detention centers and prisons around the country. Uh, Seth, um, can you just um, tell people again um, uh, how to see, to how to be able to get um, the film that you made? Uh, you're off off sound. Sorry about that. Um, the film is called The Facility, and you can find it on the Field of Vision website. Um, uh, the, probably the easiest way to do that is to Google it, but you can also just go to field, F-I-E-L-D, of vision.org, and one of the first films that will pop up is, is mine. It's called The Facility. Um, you can watch it there and in a number of other places. Uh, it is now streaming there for free. Um, thank you. Um, have, have things gotten better under um, the, the, the first two years of the, the Biden administration? 
I mean, my sense about how to answer that question, which everybody asks, is that in a way, yes, I mean, certain things have become less punishing, um, but it's uh, for sure. There are generally have generally been fewer people in detention. Um, Generally speaking, um, there is somewhat some more openness to even considering people's asylum claims. Um, Fewer people are being picked up uh, sort of at random as they go about their life in the interior of the United States. But I think it's important to take a longer view of the immigration system than simply one president to the next. I mean, you know, Trump made it a central part of his campaign and um, the central rhetorical strategy of his presidency to demonize immigrants. You know, we, we recall all sorts of things that he said when he was running and then after he was president that were incredibly racist and terrible things to say uh, in order to rile up his base. Um, but and that that was incredibly important and did incredible damage. And there were a number of policies that were draconian and, and created very, very significant harm that were new to to to, to the Trump administration. Some of those have changed. But th- but the reality is that if you look back three or four decades, um, none of these particular things that we're talking about were at issue. People were not detained in mass uh, when they were seeking asylum or if they were if the government was was seeking to deport them. They were allowed to proceed with their immigration cases from home, as we discussed. Immigration detention and the sort of massive infrastructure of immigration enforcement is a relatively new thing. It it began to grow in the 80s and then very significantly in the 90s under Clinton. And then after 9-11 um, exploded with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And that still is the paradigm. That's still the world that we live in now. That sort of massive bellicose immigration enforcement system, you know, um, where there are multiple police agencies, federal police agencies, entirely dedicated to regulating regulating immigration. And so I find it useful to compare our present, not exactly to three years ago when Trump was president, but to 30 or 40 years ago at a time when we were making profoundly different decisions about the shape of our immigration system. And I think that longer view opens up a sense of what might be possible. It opens up a sense of what the stakes are um, and it, it allows for, I think, a bigger kind of thinking about what the, what the future might look like or what kinds of options we have um, for dealing with um, decisions about who should be allowed to stay and who will not be allowed to stay, and, how people I, can make claims for their own protection. And um, I certainly hope that things will, will change. Um, can you ta- uh, talk about one? Um, situation, maybe it's one conversation, maybe it's something broader that, uh, that just bothered you more particularly than, than anything else. Something that, um, that said, you know, this, this, this can't be happening. You know, um, it's a, it's a, it's a interesting question because, um, Sometimes in the work I do, the things that are are hardest, the things that I find sort of most troubling can also be the most, in a funny way, gratifying. That is, when I've been able to uncover 
a harm when I've been able to discover something or learn something that was unknown, but that we sort of maybe knew was happening, but couldn't previously prove. Sometimes those things are, are, are terrible things, but being able to know that they happened, to be able to establish a set of facts also feels really important to me. And to be more specific, you know, um, I think a lot about a project that I worked on about five years ago about a and, and and Seth, we uh, were coming um, close to the end, so a couple couple of minutes. Uh, a project I worked on a couple of years ago um, that involved the deaths of dozens of people in a separate part of the immigration prison system in the United States. Um, and I remember um, calling a woman in Mexico whose son had died inside of one of these facilities. I had obtained records about his death. He had committed suicide after he was ignored, even though it was clear that he was struggling with uh, very clear and well-documented um, mental health issues, and that he had been previously su suicidal and that the facility did or should have known that. And I remember calling her and realizing very quickly that she knew only that her son had died and nothing else. No information had ever been communicated to her about how he had died, where exactly he had been when he had died. And she had spent several years in um, a state of both profound grief and also the sort of terror of, of not knowing exactly what had happened to her son. Um, and so I communicated to her what I had learned. I asked her if she wanted me to do that. She very much did. And we spent a, a very long period of time, you know, a couple of hours, I think, on the phone, talking through everything that I had learned, not just from the records, but also from other people who had been held in the same facility and knew and had watched what had happened happen. Um, it was a really awful conversation to have for her, especially for me also to, to be kind of communicating this intimate, terrible thing about loss to somebody who absolutely had deserved to know that long before and had never learned that. Um, and and I, I didn't like doing that. And it was difficult. And I wondered about the ethics of it. Um, at the same time, being able to do that felt important and meaningful and like a part of, of, of my work that, you know, that sometimes happens. That is that I'm able to gain information that's important from an accountability perspective. You know, that story shed a light on a system that was failing to protect people in dramatic and terrible ways, but also um, where I was able to kind of communicate something to the mother of, of the person who had been directly harmed that, um, that felt like the right thing to do. So, um, you know, it's sort of the answer to two questions, the, the, in a way, the hardest part and, and, and in a way, sometimes the, the most kind of gratifying part of, of the work. Um, uh, we only have a, another, uh, minute. Is there, um, um, and in that, um, minute, do you have a sense that, uh, that things could get better? Um, my, uh, honest answer to that is that uh the immigration system and its messiness and its cruelty you know have been a consistent thing 
uh, across a lot of time. And it is politically useful to not fix a lot of the problems that we've <clears throat> we've been talking about. And so uh, I often think that it's unlikely to get a whole lot better uh, and that, um, you know, that it could get it could get much worse. Um, and I think that, you know, um, if somebody with politics like Trump's becomes president and the president controls these systems of immigration enforcement, that it could get a whole lot worse, a whole lot more cruel and become a sort of terrible political football um, uh, in the way that it, it had been and and sometimes continues to be. Um, on the other hand, um, there have been changes that have made life more livable for people. Um, uh, there have the after the the protests that I described in the Irwin County Detention Center, and after my reporting and others reporting, um, and after a number of other really dramatic things happened, the Irwin County Detention Center, that one ICE detention center, was closed. Um, the Biden administration ordered it to not be used anymore as an immigration detention center. And there have been a number of, number of other wins like that. Um, there have been some other um, important changes, but they have been particular and and small. Thank you. Um, uh, the information you've given is uh, disturbing, but important to hear. You have been listening to Change Agents on WERU at 89.9 on um, the dial and on the World Wide Web. We have discussed um, Seth Wessler's work as an investigative reporter focusing on uh, immigration. And um, Seth, thank you for the work that you have done and, uh, and for the work that you will do in the next um, in the next years. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. So you can 